0: We're going to have to turn around all those people who keep saying, but we've always done it that way. It's our young people that are going to have to do it. Welcome to The Ongoing Transformation, a podcast from Issues in Science and Technology. Issues is a publication of the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine in Arizona State University. I'm Josh Tripani, Senior Editor of Issues in Science and Technology. I'm joined by Matt Horahan, Director of the R&D Budget and Policy Program for the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Matt is a valuable source of information and insight on science budgets for policymakers and the science community. On today's episode, we're going to do a deep dive on the recently released Fiscal Year 2023 budget and see how understanding these numbers can help us understand priorities and values for the administration overall. Matt, thank you for being here. It's so great to have you with us. So the administration released its FY23 budget on March 28th this year, and you've studied federal R&D budgets and the budget process for years. I was wondering if there's anything in particular that surprised you about this year's budget request.
1: Maybe the most surprising thing is the fact they released it so soon after the omnibus, right? The FY22 omnibus was adopted just, you know, a few weeks before the new budget came out. Uh, And this meant, among other things, it meant something of a complicated interpretation of this year's budget request because none of the numbers that showed up in the final omnibus appeared in the FY23 budget documentation. Instead, the administration simply assumed CR levels or continuing resolution levels for FY22, when they kind of when they started, you know, they, they used that as a baseline for their increases for FY23. And those numbers, I mean, you can throw them all right out, they're meaningless because we now have an actual omnibus to work from. So it took a little bit of had to jump through some hoops to kind of get a get a clearer sense of what would increase or, or not increase in the administration's budget. And it also frankly means, you know, if the administration was using a baseline, you know, based on unreality. Uh, you could say, you know, from a from a CR that was no longer in place, you kind of have to take a lot of these numbers with a with a grain of salt. For example, the Institute of Education and Science, technically, the administration in their budget request uh, would tee up that institute for a 10% cut from FY22 levels, just because you know their budget documentation didn't include that FY22 omnibus spending level where it did get an increase. Do they actually want to cut that institute by 10%? No. So it kind of complicated things. And there was a little bit of grumbling about, about that, made it a bit harder. But beyond that, you know, in terms of priorities, there's a lot in the in the budget request that kind of continued ongoing themes from this administration from last year.
0: Yeah, I heard that using the CR numbers instead of the omnibus numbers was driving people crazy all over town as they tried to put together comparisons and understand exactly what. The administration was asking for versus what they actually got versus what had been in the previous budget. Can you talk a little bit uh, about what some of those priority areas
1: are in terms of R and D? Yeah, I can. There's a, a few I can I can mention. I think the number one priority for this administration, arguably anyway, the number one priority is probably climate science and clean energy. So on the climate side, there are lots of federal programs that deal with various aspects of of understanding climate change, understanding its impacts on various ecosystems. You have the NASA Earth Science Program. You have climate programs, climate science programs within the U.S. Geological Survey. You have Earth Modeling Programs within DOE. Of course, NOAA Climate Research is another one. And and, lots of programs like that, a lot of those would see big plus-ups and bigger plus-ups than other parts of the budget you also have uh, on the clean energy front you have offices like the office of energy efficiency and renewable energy uh, within the department of energy it's kind of the, the flagship efficiency and renewables r&d uh, office in government they'd get a big increase of you know nearly 25% as i recall you have uh, the advanced research projects agency energy one of these arpa style you know kind of dynamic high risk highly innovative offices for energy r&d would get a big increase so energy and climate certainly a big one, you know, maybe the biggest. Relatedly, you also have a lot of manufacturing programs that would see uh, uh, plus ups, including DOE's uh, Advanced Manufacturing Office, uh, certain manufacturing programs within the Department of Commerce, and, and and some other places. Again, manufacturing R&D, manufacturing innovation has been uh, one of those areas. You know, this is dealing with the supply chain, strengthening the domestic supply chain. Uh, these are all areas that the administration has, has been focused on from the beginning. You know, we'd see plus ups there, the request, you know, maybe two other areas just to quickly mention would be pandemic preparedness. And that would take the form of an $82 billion proposal for um, pandemic preparedness funding across uh, health and human services. From a research perspective, maybe most notable would be $12 billion of that uh, would, would go towards uh, NIH. And then STEM education, again, much like energy and climate, lots of different programs kind of throughout government. Many of those, not all of them, but many of them would see plus ups as well. So um, those would be kind of the, I think, big priorities for the administration. And again, these are echoes of, of what we saw in last year's uh, budget request as well. Yeah, thank you for that.
0: Yeah, that's really helpful. In addition to that, I wanted to ask you about two specific areas where uh, there's been a lot of attention lately. And one is um, NSF's new directorate for technology, innovation and partnerships which they formally established just last month. And I think it's the first time that um, NSF has set up a new directorate in about 30 years. The other one is um, ARPA-H, which is a new agency. It's been a lot of, a lot of discussion. And for the moment, it turns out, I think, as a, as a compromise, they're going to have it sit inside NIH but report directly to the HHS secretary. And the thinking there is that they could use the administrative support of NIH without necessarily going through the same processes. What is the budget calling for uh, in the cases
1: of those two? So I'll start with ARPA-H first or ARPA-Health first. Um, so they would uh, would receive uh, $5 billion in the budget request. But if that's been sort of a point of controversy for NIH. And again, this is a product perhaps of not having those omnibus numbers in place when some of these other numbers were, were, were baked in. NIH would get a big increase from a top-line perspective in the FY23 request but almost the entirety of that increase would be eaten up by ARPA Health and by the aforementioned pandemic preparedness funding. Take those out and NIH would actually get, core NIH would actually get less than a 1% increase uh, from FY22. So certainly some controversy there. And then on the, uh, on the NSF side and the new technology directorate, so it's, it's kind of an interesting story. You know, As, as you said, they, it was recently established. Authorizers and appropriators seem to like it, seem to want to fund it. But in the FY22 Omnibus, uh, NSF only got about a 4% increase. I believe less than $300 million increase in the research and related activities account, which funds the technology directorate. Uh, And appropriators also directed, well, they provided some other plus-ups for some other programs and climate and energy and quantum and and AI and some other areas. And they also directed core NSF generally and and, and support for the core disciplines generally to be um, at least flat. Or no less than flat from FY21 levels. So most likely, we, we don't actually know what the new technology directorate, what kind of funding it will get in FY22, but there's very, very little available. So having said all that, the administration in FY23 proposed uh, about a $500 million increase for those programs, those existing programs in this new technology directorate, right? There are a handful that predate this new directorate. They're now under the, the new directorate umbrella. Uh, it would include I It would include the Convergence Accelerator Program, a couple others. I think SBIR is in there now. So, you know, for those existing programs plus new programs, the administration would propose altogether an increase of 500 million. That's about what they proposed last year as well. Uh, in both cases, it's a request for this new directorate between eight and 900 million. And, uh, you know, so what happens with that going forward? We you know authorizers. Uh, have teed up legislation through America Competes and through the USICA bill in the Senate, you know, it's the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act. Both of these would authorize much larger increases for this new tech directorate, over a billion dollars in the FY23 fiscal year, well over $23 billion, much larger than the administration has even asked for, let alone what appropriators were able to give in the most recent cycle. So what actually happens there? We'll have to see what happens. I think it's, it's unfortunate, certainly, that the final appropriation for NSF in the omnibus uh, was so small and so limited and probably limits their ability to do a whole lot of new things. There's a lot of promise in that new directorate. So we'll have to see how things play out. So
0: I want to pull back just a little bit. We'll get back to the budget, but I wanted to ask you, You direct AAAS's, the American Association for the Advancement of Sciences, R&D Budget and Policy Program, which has been around for quite a while. Um, There's always a lot of interest in science policy careers and your career seems like an interesting one and the work of your program seems very interesting. And I was wondering if you could just say some more about what
1: it is that you do and maybe a little bit about how you came to do it. So we often say that the the program that I run, the R&D Budget and Policy Program, we often say it's here to be an information resource at its heart. So, you know, it means a lot of different things. You know, we, one of the things we've been doing the last few years is putting together interactive dashboards to help people follow along with the appropriations process. Or, you know, more recently, we've we've put together a dashboard on earmarks. So you can actually go in and, you know, this resource that we set up allows you to go in and find out which science related or STEM education related Year marks have been put in in spending bills and what the, what has been proposed and and all that. So we try to provide those kinds of resources to help people understand what's happening. We do a lot of uh, you know we often will do reports on long term trends in federal R and D. So what's up, what's down, um, how the U S compares with other international leaders, including China and Korea and Germany. And, and one of the most useful things we do, I think, and, and certainly the thing that seems to be highly valued by policymakers, is that you know, trying to be a source of information on comparative R&D spending. You know, I give a lot of talks on both the what's happening in the R&D budget front, as well as just breaking down like the appropriations process and the, the budget process for audiences, you know, who aren't experts on this stuff, grad students or fellows and 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 people like that. And then there's some media work as well, dealing with uh, reporters and helping them understand what's happening and, and, and what's changing. The program itself has been around since the 70s. And we try to make a, a useful contribution to the debate and help people understand what's happening and kind of help lay the ground level for what are the facts on the ground regarding, uh, regarding R&D and R&D expenditures. And in terms of how I got here, I actually started out as a journalist. Uh, my undergrad degree is in journalism. I'm not a scientist or an engineer. There's an alternate reality somewhere where the print journalism industry is, uh, is much healthier and um, I'm you know, kind of a rumpled ink stain somewhere in some mid-sized American city covering planning commission meetings, which would be a-okay by me. I actually really enjoy that, that kind of super local, super wonky, boring (laughs) policy stuff. But it wasn't meant to be. And um, after I'd been in DC for a few years doing communications work, I uh, actually went back to grad school for a master's in science and tech policy. While in grad school, I was an intern at AAAS. In it's now called the Office of Government Relations, which is where I work now. The program I run is within the Office of Government Relations. But I interned there, um, you know, working alongside many of the people I still work with today, and that was, you know, kind of a that was the introduction, really, both the organization to me and also me to the organization. And uh, a couple of years later, when uh, when this position opened up, I uh, you know I applied and and they remembered me and and, and the work I had done, and that was uh, that's how I got my foot in the door. And I'm not the only one either. There's actually um, several people over the years who have worked at Triple A S or currently work at Triple A S who started out as as interns or science and tech policy fellows, uh, which is another you know, program for many of your listeners are aware of. But that's, you know, it seems to be a pretty good way to get one's foot in the door that your play us.
0: So that's a testament to the power of internships. And I've seen that at other places I've been to interns are remembered. Interns that do a good job are remembered. And, and sometimes they come back later and now you run a program and you've been there for 10 years. Was that your first encounter with the federal budget? Um, because I think one of the services that you provide is taking these documents and these processes that are fairly incomprehensible to most people. Even people who work in DC have a lot of trouble really understanding it and extracting it. How did you kind of get up to speed on that?
1: Over a period of an extended period of time, really. I mean, I mean my first exposure with the federal budget, kind of at a professional level, my first job in DC was at an ocean conservation nonprofit and an advocacy organization. We, I dealt with the budget a little bit there, you know, budgets for NOAA and things like that. We draft statements and things when a new budget came out. It wasn't a huge part of my job, but that was kind of my first introduction. And then in grad school, I actually had a class on the federal budget and budget policy and public budgeting in general. That was at George Mason University. Professor was Sionilistikin. And uh, it was actually a really great class. I, I loved it. I thought it was really interesting. I find the budget process and kind of the idea that you're marrying big picture f- debates, you know, that fall on ideological lines or, or you know, very much driven by values, with like <laughs> super wonky detailed spreadsheets and just all the, you know, all the the boring stuff that happens within the federal budget. I just, I actually think it's a really fascinating process.
0: Yeah, that's really, really interesting. A little bit, uh, you got a little bit of an introduction, and it turned into becoming a deep expert on it over time. So to turn back to this year's budget, of course, the president's request is just the first part of the process, and now the Hill will get to work on the FY23 budget. What is your sense of how this request will be received on the Hill?
1: It's kind of predictable when a new budget comes out. The opposing party declares it dead on arrival and has loads of criticisms over its, you know, the amounts of spending, or the priorities, and uh, and its failure to address public issues, X, Y, and Z. On the other hand, the president's own party comes out speaking positively, embraces it, and then moves on. <laughs> and everybody kind of moves on and gets to the, the hard work of making appropriations decisions. This year, I think, has been, hasn't really been any different than that. If anything, the response is, you know, my, my sense is that the response has been uh, almost a little, little bit muted also probably has something to do with the fact that that it's just difficult, to, more difficult than usual to kind of parse this budget to understand what it's really asking for and which numbers to focus on versus which to ignore. So in the long run, we'll have to see what happens. I mean, it's something that not a lot of people really understand, but one of the reasons that FY22 appropriations weren't quite as big for a lot of science agencies as one might have hoped is because the overall discretionary spending limits were much smaller than the White House certainly had wanted and it. Democrats have been going for on the non-defense side. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting.
0: There are so many variables at play, and I've read about the role that elections may play this time, too. But, you know, separate from that, and, and tell me if this is not your impression, but I feel like one of the things that we've seen over the last 10 years or more is kind of a breakdown of the process from start to finish. I can remember, I think I can remember a time when the president's budget request, it always came at the same time in mid-February. It was accompanied by coordinated agency briefings. I joined the Higher Education Association in 2010, and they had a very regimented process that they ran every year, for getting those numbers and processing them and getting them out to their members super duper quickly because everybody wanted them right away because they were treated as something very, very important. And now it seems like slowly the process is kind of broken apart from there. We see late budgets, we see skinny budgets, we see budgets that don't come or they come late or they have different amounts of detail. And then on the other side, I don't know how long it's been since we've had Congress actually pass a budget before the beginning of the fiscal year, right? As we were talking about, they wrapped up FY22 in March, just a few weeks before FY23 was introduced. So we're living in a world of continuing resolutions, occasional funding breaks, which have really detrimental effects for science. What is your perspective on, first of all, whether that's an accurate representation, but then like, why has this happened? And then I think even bigger, would there be any way to fix it? Or is this what we are doomed to do as a budget process from
1: here on forward? So uh, first, let me just say that. So the last year, it's fun bit of trivia I, I often bring up when I'm talking to folks about the budget, but the last year Congress had what's called regular order, which is getting all their funding done on time. Before their deadline uh, is 1996, so long time indeed. You know the issue, of course. It's I don't know that there is it's any big you know big secret. I mean, it's you know there is there really aren't strong incentives for Congress to get their work done on time, especially in the age of political polarization. The parties have moved farther apart on some of these big fiscal challenges, and you know I think just the incentives kind of line up that it's easier for the parties to take harder lines on overall spending and and deficits and, and, and some of these issues and delay, you know, key votes and delay action, political incentives are there to, to be tougher about this kind of thing uh, than they are to compromise, to get together, to get their work done on time, because there are downsides to not having budgets finished on time. You know, from a science agency perspective, agencies can't pursue new projects if they're under a CR the uncertainty makes things a lot harder uh, if you're an agency trying to plan out your year plan out new or existing programs it may mean delaying certain expenditures and you know construction and repairs or you know acquisition of equipment or or materials so there's a lot of downsides to it but politically the negatives that come from operating under CRs and having you know agencies always spending half of every year or a quarter of every year under a CRs that the downsides aren't sufficient political motivation or incentive to, to get something done on time. What do we do about it? I mean, it's, you know, really the question is, you know, what do we what do we do about polarization? And I don't know, I'm not a political scientist, and there's lots of other people who probably have better ideas than me on how to, how to address that. One idea that has been floated for many years, and actually going back, I mean, I think the first congressional hearing on this was something like 40 years ago, and that is uh, operating under a biennial budget cycle or two-year budget cycle. There has has been, over many years, there's been uh, proposals and legislation introduced that would shift government from a one-year annual appropriation cycle to a two-year cycle. There are different ways you can do it, but it's gotten quite a bit of support from different legislators over the years. One of the arguments in favor of it would be that because, you know, Congress just seems totally incapable of getting their work done on time, if you're on a two-year cycle, you're still dealing with all the same stuff, CRs and, and debates over fiscal cliffs and all that, but you're only dealing with it half as often, right? You, you get to take a year off from it <laughs> every other year, which provides a little more stability. And, and you know, there's reasons why maybe this isn't such a great idea. There, there's arguments for and against it. And lately, you know, the, the pandemic has kind of made this, has put this topic on the back burner. But before the pandemic, there were, had been a fair number of legislators who thought this was a pretty good idea. Uh, whether it happens, you know, we'll, we'll have to see. But, but that is one, that, one idea that often comes up. One of the things that concerns me as
0: someone who's in this space about this situation is, despite all the talk about the need for a, a stronger, more inclusive STEM workforce and international competitiveness, every time this happens, it puts this pipeline in jeopardy because you have postdocs, you have graduate students who are relying on grant money, which is being withheld or delayed and there's no alternative for a lot of those people you know and and where do they go and i know that that takes would take a while to bubble up to being a political concern of maybe sufficient magnitude but it's it's one of the things that seems like a bit of a disconnect in this whole process yeah that's
1: a great point and you're absolutely right i mean just generally speaking when legislators hear from young scientists or students you know that often can be a really uh, useful and important source of input and, and influence on on legislators. And you know, clearly I think there there should be much more attention focused on the downsides of CRs and the uncertainty from a human capital perspective. When grants, assistantships, or different forms of federal support, when that gets cut off because of this fiscal uncertainty, even though that's a those are absolutely stories we we should be telling. And I'd certainly encourage anybody, you know, who's dealt with that to try to, you know, try to share their story uh, in ways that they feel comfortable with, because that is an important, those are, those are all really important anecdotes and the kinds of things that may get legislators or their staff to, to pay a little more attention.
0: That's a great point. We should never forget that budgets affect people. Thank you, Matt, for sharing your insights on the FY23 budget and what they can mean for federal science programs. And thank you to our listeners for joining us for this episode of the Ongoing Transformation. To find more of Matt's work, follow him on Twitter at matt Hornahan, and visit his program's website at aas.org/rd. That's aas.org/rd. Please subscribe to the ongoing transformation wherever you get your podcasts. Email us at podcast at with any comments or suggestions. If you enjoy conversations like this one. Visit us at Issues.org and consider subscribing to our magazine. I'm Josh Trapani, Senior Editor of Issues in Science and Technology. Thank you for joining us.